0: I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and open to uh, the book of First Thessalonians. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we come to His Word. Father, we are we are so blessed this morning to be together, to be together as the family, to be together with You in Your presence, to know that You are in a very unique way here with us as the body comes together. You are here in our midst. We uh, are so grateful that not only do we get to worship You and meet with You and meet with one another, but uh, we get to hear from You even in this time as we come to Your Word. We ask that You would uh, indeed speak through Your Word this morning and speak to our hearts that we might listen and be changed. Lord, I know there are a lot of folks here this morning who have come with need. Some need to be comforted. Some need to be encouraged. Some need uh, physical strength and healing. We do particularly pray for uh, Betty Kirk, who will be having brain surgery in the morning. We we'll ask Your grace upon her. and Healing for so many here who are struggling and suffering physically. The Lord, in these moments we want our attention to be upon You. And uh, so we come with eager hearts, we come with open ears, and we ask Your blessing on Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. What are you living for? When your feet hit the floor tomorrow morning, As you get ready, perhaps, to go to school, to commute to work, to uh, drive to the store, do you ever wonder why? Why are you doing what you're doing? Are you simply going through the motions, doing just whatever is, is next on the list, putting one foot in front of the other, looking to be faithful to get stuff done? Or is there some greater purpose behind what you do? Some greater aspiration that you're aiming for? What is your purpose in doing what you do? That question is before us today. We're in a study here in the in the book of 1 Thessalonians. I encourage you again to turn there if you're not there already. When the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a young church up in the city of Thessalonica, there in today what we'd call northern Greece. He, he said something about this church that he never said about any other church. We noted that a couple of weeks ago. He calls this church a model church, an example. He says that this young church, young as they were as believers, that... Somehow they exemplified what it is to be a believer in Christ. They exemplified what the church, the local church, is to look like. And That's something for us worthy to take note of. It's the focus of our current series of studies here in this book to examine the models, the examples, the, the patterns that are set out here in this book. For us to follow. And today we're looking in this church to see a model of purpose. Answering that question, what is it we are aiming for? What is it that we are to be doing as people of God? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to pick up this morning in, in verse 11. Overlapping just slightly with Pastor Aaron last week. Verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. Last week, Pastor Aaron noted how Paul and and his company, Paul and Silas and Timothy, how they ministered among these Thessalonians like a nursing mother, tender and gentle and nurturing and now here in verse 11, Paul says, we were also among you like a father. I've noticed, you probably have too, that there tends generally to be differences between parenting styles of mothers and fathers. Have you seen that? You know, mothers tend to be this just doting and gentle, protective, you know, person while dads are this. You know, we're throwing kids in the air, hanging them by their feet. (laughs) You haven't seen that? Some of you are just staring at me like I'm insane. (laughs) That's the way it is around my house anyway as I watch my son and my daughter-in-law and as I've seen some of you all. Moms, you know, when Junior falls down, Mom is like, Oh, you poor baby, are you okay? And dads are like, Get up already, you know. Shake it off. It's just a flesh wound, you know. <laughs> Paul says, we were like that nurturing mom, but we were also like a father. Fathers, good fathers, aren't uncaring or insensitive, but they're different. And in this sense, he says, we're like a father who was cheering you on, like a dad coaching his son in baseball, you know. The dad's on there on the sidelines always calling out, Pay attention! Don't go to sleep out there! Keep your eye on the ball. Run! 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 Run faster! Run harder! Go! Go! You can do it! That's dad's. Paul says their fatherly ministry had a particular focus. And that was to communicate a point and to communicate a a message. And he says like good fathers, they use different... Methodologies, different ways to get it across, and they kind of overlap, but he says, we exhorted, we encouraged, and we charged, we challenged you. In other words, there was training going on, there was equipping going on, there was coaching going on, there was encouragement, and there's challenge. All to get them moving and keep them moving. The importance of this message is emphasized, as he says, you may have not, noticed in verse 12, he said, we exhorted each one of you. The point is there's personal attention here and there's, it's individual and it's inclusive. They didn't leave anybody out. They wanted to leave no stone unturned because this message is important. Some of you, by the way, you may notice as I read this in verses 11 and 12, that some of the words in some translations are in verse 11 and some are in verse 12. Some of the same words. It's okay. Don't freak out. But in verse 12, it says, We encouraged each one of you and encouraged and charged you. Again, in some of your Bibles, that's in verse 11. But here's the message. What's the message? To walk in a manner worthy of God. Here it is. Here is a purpose statement. Here is the the challenge for for how you and I should live, what we should aim for. Live a life worthy of God. By the way, this would make a great life verse. If you're looking for some verse to print out and stick on your, your mirror to look at in the mornings, or some verse to, to stick on the dashboard of your car where you see it every day as you drive to work, or you... A verse just, what am I going to aim at? What am I aiming at in my day? Here's a great verse. We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Worthy of God. It says don't just live life. Don't just live life like everybody else around you. Don't just exist, but you be different. You live a life worthy of God. You can hear that sounds like a dad talking to a son or a daughter before they head off to college or before they head off on their day. Look, you be different. You live a life worthy of God. That's a marvelous calling. That is a marvelous life verse. A great purpose statement. Live a life worthy of God? But that raises perhaps a question or two. I mean, that sounds good. That sounds inspiring. It sounds motivating. But then you think about it for a minute and you think, what's a life worthy of God look like? And not only what does it look like, but I mean, look at me. (laughs) Can I live a life worthy of God? That actually could sound defeating. Unless it's possible for us. What does it look like? Well, I think the next verses help us see what this is. The rest of the passage, let's dig in just a little bit. This morning I want to just note three characteristics of a life that is worthy of God. Call us to deliver it. One more look back at verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and we encouraged you and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. When you became a believer in Jesus Christ, God rescued you from the grip and from the penalty of sin. God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, that... He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish. The good news of the Gospel is this. The Bible says all of us are sinners. The wages of sin is death. We have earned and we deserve eternal punishment in hell. But the good news of the Scriptures, the good news of the Gospel is that God has rescued us from that. Anyone who will believe, who will trust in Jesus Christ, there is rescue from hell. But it doesn't stop there. The news gets even more fantastic. We're not just not headed for hell, but as believers in Christ, God has given to us a new destiny. A destiny to share in His kingdom. His eternal kingdom and in His glory. And God's kingdom and sharing in Christ's glory is not just our future destiny, it's also our present reality. Let that sink in for just a second. It's not just our future destiny. It should be and is our present reality. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says, For He, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We are headed for the kingdom of God. We are headed for an eternity in heaven. We are headed to share in the glory of Christ. But it's already now that we are there in Christ's kingdom. Philippians 3 verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. That's our citizenship. It's there. We are headed for the kingdom of God, but we are also in it now because our citizenship, he says, is already there. It's in heaven We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we so eagerly await Christ is while we have a position in the kingdom of God, it's not our experience at the moment. But when Jesus Christ returns, our position in the kingdom will be changed into experience. We in the kingdom in our experience, not just our position. In other words, if I can put it in terms maybe that we might understand, for my son, he's in the process of buying a house just a few weeks from now. There will be a day when the, the deal is done. The papers are signed. The names are on the deed. But he's still waiting on the moving truck to actually be living in the house. In a sense, that's where we are. We've been We're in the kingdom. The deal is done. Our names are on the deed. We've got a place in heaven reserved for us. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. It's ready. There's a day coming when we're going to move in it. We're just waiting for Jesus to come back. The day's coming. But right now, it's already real. It's already our identity. If I may say, the point of this is that living in a manner worthy of God, first of all, he says, it means that it's living as a citizen of heaven. Recognizing that's already our reality. You are a citizen of heaven. Last week, I was sitting with some neighbors, and I was listening to one of one of the neighbors who was talking about how how they moved into our hood in the last couple of years, and all the things that have been going on. How they joined the country club, and and uh, so that they could play golf whenever they want and enjoy all the amenities and how they, they put in a pool and how they've been busy rehabbing their house from top to bottom, including the brand new sports bar themed uh, man cave in the basement. And everything in the house is all new and they're just putting on the finishing touches and it's all going to be done. And he went all through the list. He came to the end of his list and he said, all of this so that we can enjoy life to his fullest because that's what it's all about. And you see, if you're a citizen of earth, that's what it's all about. That's all there is. But if we are citizens of heaven, this isn't what it's all about. If we're citizens of heaven, everything changes. You see, the mantra of earth, it goes back to the ancient Greeks and beyond that. You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Life is short, and so, you know, soak up everything you can in this life and make the best of it because this is all there is. And it's over. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, everything should be different. Life is short, and heaven is forever. And our citizenship is there, not here. And so it should change our priorities. It should change our motivations. It should change everything. Our values. That's why Jesus called for us to make His kingdom our top priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things He goes on to say will be added to you. It's not that, that we we don't need food and we don't need clothes. It's not that we it's wrong to have a house to live in or to have a car to drive or any of those things. He says, but those things aren't the priority. The kingdom of God needs to be first. That's why He challenges us to value eternal things over earthly things. Earlier in that chapter of Matthew 6, he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But instead, he goes on to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. See, for the one who whose home is in heaven, it changes our view of the stuff of earth. If we're going to live a life worthy of God, the first thing we need to do is we need to remember where our real citizenship is and we need to live as a citizen of heaven. Back to First Thessalonians here, Paul continues in, in verse 13, he says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. Which is at work in you believers he says when the Thessalonians received when they that means when they heard the word says you accepted it I love the translation of the new King James and some others it says you welcomed it when you heard it you welcomed it you welcomed it for what it really is not man's words but God's word second thing I see here for someone who's going to live in a manner worthy of God, is that they need to embrace the Word of God. Embracing the Word of God isn't that we walk around all day like this. You know, clutching our Bible, holding it close, that's not at all what I mean. What I mean is that we treasure it. We value it. Now, it's a wonderful thing If the Word of God for you stirs up all kinds of emotion and feelings, or you just said, man, I love the Word of God. It warms my heart. It stirs up passion and feelings in me. That is wonderful if it does that for you. But I've been a pastor for an awful long time and i know that when if i got you alone and if you really were honest that a vast majority of you would say you know i would really love for the word of god to stir up feelings like that in me but usually it's feelings of fear confusion boredom <laughs> right we struggle with those sometimes we're not excited should get in the Word. Right? Honestly, many of you, most of you. And I notice that Paul doesn't say here that these folks welcome the Word of God because it stirred and warmed their hearts and made them feel all warm and fuzzy. Do you notice why they welcome the Word of God? Look at it. It's very objective. You accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God. In other words, it was an intellectual understanding and a spiritual awakening where they heard the Word and they understood this isn't men talking, this is God speaking. The reason they welcomed it, the reason they embraced the Word of God, the reason it suddenly becomes valuable and a treasure is not because it makes me feel good, but because it is God's Word. God speaks. And when God speaks, We better listen. You see, you and I shouldn't treasure God's Word someday when suddenly we feel warm and fuzzy and excited about it. We should treasure it because of what it is. It's the Word of God. Therefore, it becomes valuable. I choose to value to place a high priority and a high value on the Word of God. If you're going to wait around till you feel like it, many of you will wait your whole life. You will feel like it sometime after you choose to value it. They say it's that way many many times in marriage. Feelings follow choice and decision and action. Action. And choice and those things don't tend to follow feelings. Right? We understand that in relationship and so it is with the Word of God. Two practical realities. If we're going to treasure, if we do treasure God's Word, it changes a couple of things in our values, in our priorities. For one thing, we will if we treasure it, we will listen to it. This will no longer just be a nice book on the shelf. If it's the Word of the Creator God who has spoken to you and to me, if it is then the, the only place where you and I can learn the truth about who God is and what God says, for how else can finite mortal creatures understand the and know anything of the infinite, immortal, eternal God? We cannot unless He reveals Himself to us, which He has done through His Word. How else can finite mortal creatures get a perspective of eternity and infinity unless it is revealed to us? We cannot. And so God's Word doesn't become something optional or a nice thing to to get into if I get around to it, rather it becomes a priority and a necessity. For the one who treasures the Word of God, then they begin to seek out any and every opportunity to hear what God has to say. So we do read it. We listen to it. We study it. We meditate upon it, as David says, Oh, how I love your law. And I don't think he's talking just warm, fuzzy feelings. He's talking about he's placed a high value upon it. I love your law. It is my meditation all day, all the day, not hum. If meditation means I think about what did he say? What does he mean? How do I apply that in my life? He thinks about it. He says, Not only that, earlier in Psalm 119, he says, Verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart place to memorize the Word of God. See, if we're going to live in a manner worthy of God, we need to embrace the Word of God. That means to treasure it, to listen to it. And Paul goes on to say here, he says, when they did that, he said, it was at work in you. When you and I will treasure the Word of God, we will ultimately be transformed by it. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce between the joints of the marrow. It is the discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God is alive and powerful. It is able to go in and do spiritual surgery in you and me. When we treasure the word of God, what happens is the word doesn't just you know, come here and go right through the empty space here and go out the other ear. When we treasure the Word of God, we recognize God is speaking and when we hear the Word of God, it goes through our heart because we treasure it and our heart listens and what we recognize is that we recognize there's truth here for me to hear and to embrace and things begin to change. Not because we just make changes, but because the Word of God is alive and powerful and it begins to change us. But it will not happen if we do not listen to the Word and it will not happen if we do not treasure the Word. So when God speaks, It's not the word of a teacher. It's not the word of a politician. It's not the word of an expert. It's not the word of a counselor. It's not the word of just some authority. It's the word of God. And when God speaks and He says some ridiculous thing like husbands, love your wives, we do it. When He says some ridiculous thing like forgive in the same way I have forgiven you, we do it. Because it's not some counselor, it's not some expert, it's not some whoever. It's God who speaks. When the Word says, submit to authority, we do it. As ridiculous as that sounds. When the Word of God says, do good to your enemy, we do it. And God begins through the process of it all to change our heart. There's a third characteristic of a life worthy of God. We find it in verses 14 to 18. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God, of Christ Jesus, that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to fill up the measure of their sins but wrath has come upon them at last a lot of stuff there and you probably look at that and go I don't see where there's a characteristic here of a life worthy of God but let me explain it a little bit first these Thessalonians we already know from the first chapter if you were here a couple of weeks ago they're undergoing suffering and he says you here experience suffering from your own people in that same way, they were, they were imitating, they were following the footsteps of the churches of Judea, who you see their story in the book of Acts, who they were suffering at the hands of their own countrymen, the unbelieving Jews, as those believing Jews who believed in Christ were suffering at the hands of the unbelieving Jews. Before them, the unbelieving Jews killed Jesus. Before Jesus, the unbelieving Jews killed many Old Testament prophets. And it was unbelieving Jews who persecuted Paul and Silas here, he says, driving us out of apparently many towns, many places. So we wonder what is Paul's point here in all of this? Well, is it that as Christians we are to experience suffering? If we're going to live as Christians, we're going to experience suffering. And the answer to that is, well, it's true. The Scripture says that. For all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they will suffer persecution. It's true, but I don't think that's his point. Well, maybe it's his point here that this persecution that we're going to endure as believers is going to come from those who are, who are our neighbors, who are near to us, those whom should be our allies, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our countrymen. Is that the point? Well, again, I think that's true. And by the way, our suffering brothers and sisters, a large percentage of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world suffer for their faith. And they suffered at the hands primarily of their family, friends, and countrymen. But I don't think again that that's Paul's main point. Look at me at the end of verse 15. We read it already. Let's go back. And they, those who are causing the suffering, the persecutors, they displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Here I think we're, we're getting to the point of where Paul is going. Why are these believers suffering? You see, the reason behind their persecution is this, that ultimately unbelievers are in opposition to God. They are at odds with God either and either knowingly or unknowingly they act contrary to God and to what God desires. And they actively try to prevent the spread of the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul says here, another word for, in in his way of speaking, unbelievers, so that unbelievers will not hear and believe and be saved. Paul says, in doing this, these persecutors are actually in opposition to all mankind, to the good of all mankind, because the greatest need that any man, any woman, any person has is to be rescued from sin, to be saved, and to be brought into God's kingdom and glory to enjoy that. That's the greatest need of every person. And that's what Paul is saying here is happening. The unbelievers are in opposition to God, in opposition to man. They're they're trying to stop the gospel. Now, if we just take what's going on, what Paul is saying is Thessalonians. The reason you guys are suffering is because you've been busy sharing the gospel. Other people are coming to faith in Christ, and Satan, who is behind the actions of all, he's the the prince of the power of the of this world. He's the and he is. He's moving those who are persecuting because He doesn't want the Gospel to spread. And Paul says here, in other words, to the Thessalonians, the reason that they are suffering is because they've been engaged in the mission. Remember the mission that Jesus left us. Pretty clear. Go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew chapter twenty-eight, nineteen. Acts chapter one, verse eight, you will be my witnesses. Jesus gave to every one of us who's a believer in Christ, every one of us who's a follower of his, we have a mission. And underlying, while the the, the key the, the recurring theme of these whole verses all seems to be revolving around suffering, what is underlying the suffering, the reason they are suffering is because they've embraced the mission. They've engaged the mission. And there, I think, is the third characteristic of a life that is worthy of God. One who is, who is living a life worthy of God lives as a citizen of heaven, embraces, values, cherishes the Word of God and is engaged in the mission that He left us to do. To be a witness for Jesus. To share the only hope there is in the world with the people of the world. Why are we here? Why has God left us on this planet? What is your purpose in getting up tomorrow, whether you go to work, go to school, go to shop, go to play? It should be He calls us here to go live a life worthy of God. What does it look like? Remember where we're headed. Let that affect our day. I'm headed for heaven. How does that change my day? Embrace God's Word. Take God's Word and start applying it to our day. And Remember, there's a world full of people around us who have no hope. They're living to get their house remodeled and get a pool and a newer car. And it all seems so valuable right now, but in the end it's worth nothing. And we don't want them to miss the greatest treasure there is. Life is short. Then comes eternity. In the few days we have Let's live a life worthy of God. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word which reminds us of what we tend to forget. I have a feeling that the majority of my brothers and sisters here this morning are an awful lot like me. How easy it is for us to get into routines and to get get busy. We have lists of things we have to do and we follow the lists and the lists become what drives our day and we forget the whole purpose. We forget the whole point. And we either end up just frittering our time away on meaningless stuff or end up living life purposelessly. Lord, may that not be the case with us. May we live life worthy of You because You've called us into Your kingdom and glory. Because You've rescued us out of sin and given to us a new name, a new position. He brought us into the family. Lord, may we take these principles. May they govern our life for our good, for the sake of those who have yet to hear of Jesus. And Lord, for Your glory. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.